Ladies and gentlemen, the Paul Leslie Hour presents the Jimmy Buffett interview. This episode has parts, parts one, two, and three of a never-before-heard interview of Jimmy Buffett by Clay Eels. Now, let's listen. Together. Hello? Are you here? Yes, you are. It's the Paul Leslie Hour. You know, there are few things more precious than hearing the voice of someone you love after they've gone. We listen. They're no longer here, but we still feel their presence. You may experience this in today's episode. Welcome to part one of Clay Eel's interview with Jimmy Buffett. Now, this interview took place by telephone October 26th in the year 2000. Clay Eels was interviewing Jimmy Buffett for his book, Steve Goodman, Facing the Music. Well, here we are 23 years later and Clay is generous enough to share this conversation with Paul and with you. Thank you, Clay. Now, before we begin part one of this interview, Paul and Clay are going to chat for a few minutes. It'll give some context. This interview has never been heard until now, so remember to subscribe to Paul Leslie's YouTube channel and ring that bell, ding, ding, so you won't miss parts two and three. So here we are. Time to listen. Together. Clay Eels, it's so good to have you back. For everybody out there, Clay Eels is the author of the book Steve Goodman, Facing the Music, a biography it's great to talk to you again, Clay, and so kind of you to offer to our listeners the interview that you did with Jimmy Buffett. Thanks for joining us, Clay. Oh, sure, sure. It's a it's a sad occasion, Buffett's death, but it's also a, an occasion to reflect back quite fondly on a long career that, that made a lot of people happy. Absolutely. A couple of little prerequisite questions, I guess you could say. Clay, were you at all nervous doing this interview? I mean, Jimmy Buffett, after all, he was a music star. Yeah, you know, the way I like to put it, and, and it, it's something that people don't really think about or know, but there was a time when Jimmy Buffett was uh, kind of a, a subordinate to Steve Goodman. He was a protege, actually, and as people will hear in the interview, he talks about coming up to Chicago and getting inspired by that whole scene, which was led by Goodman. And and so I, I liken it to, like, if, if the two of them are going along the highway, Goodman was driving ahead, and then Buffett comes up and and uh, signals behind him and then just gets into the passing lane and leaves him behind. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> So what you say is true. He kind of became a megastar and, and an industry all to himself. But if you're prepared with a lot of questions and, and things that you've done research on, it's just a matter of leading somebody through a chronology and asking them 
to confirm stuff or to elaborate on things or to find out things that you didn't know. And when I interviewed Jimmy, it was in October of 2000, and I was early in the process of researching the book, which is based on a lot of interviews. I interviewed more than 1,100 people for the book. But by that point, I hadn't even interviewed 300 people, but I'd interviewed enough key people to have a lot of good questions at hand. And so that's really the key to not being nervous in this kind of a situation is to be prepared with what is it you want to know and then be prepared for some surprises. Right. Well, for all the ladies and gentlemen at home, we're just about to begin the first part of your almost one hour long interview with Jimmy Buffett. And for me, when I think about Steve Goodman, I think about Buffett. And if I think especially about the first half of Buffett's career, it's inevitable I think about Steve Goodman. It's actually kind of interesting, Clay, just a quick side note. My very, very first time on any radio, I mentioned Steve Goodman. I I just thought I'd throw that in there. But aside from the writing in a similar vein, because they kind of had some commonality there, they seem to have a bit of the same irreverence. They had a similar spirit in some respects, even in sometimes how they would talk. Chicago embraced both of them. Buffett actually did an album at Wrigley Field. They could both be funny. They could also both be really, really serious. What strikes you, Clay, about why Steve Goodman and Jimmy Buffett were such good friends? Well, the answer the answer to that becomes really crystal clear when you think about live performance and about when you're able to listen to or, or see how similar both Goodman and Buffett were in their live performance. And there are lots of examples of that on the Internet to go to. But it's no accident that they were similar in live performance because even though Buffett was two years older than Goodman, he took a lot of guidance from Goodman. And what Goodman really aspired to, and he said this very eloquently in several interviews, was putting together three elements, which are, you know, we tend to think of them as separate, singing, songwriting, and guitar playing, and put all those three elements together into one package one concept, which is being the best possible live entertainer, which is like a, a, a nice sum greater than its parts. And Buffett put a big value on that as well, and he learned a lot of that from Goodman. So it's pretty natural that the two of them clicked really well. Well, let's begin. This is part one of Clay Eel's interview with Jimmy Buffett. Much of this interview you will see in print. In the book, Steve Goodman Facing the Music, which I recommend. Let's begin. It's Mike with Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. Are you set and ready? Yes, I am. Hold for Jimmy, please. Thank you. Hello? Hello, is this Jimmy? Yes. Hi, this is Clay Eels. Thanks for taking some time with me. To you bet. Talk about Steve. Um we can do this in a variety of ways. You may have stories you want to tell, but uh, I've got a whole list of things here to go through. Why don't you ask me a couple of questions? <laughs> okay. We, we've got, I've got a whole, there's a whole bunch of connections between the two. You were not only musical collaborators, but good friends. Yeah. And uh, I'll try to go through this in a roughly chronological way. Um, your 
two years older than Steve, and I'm wondering if you remember when and how you first met or how you first got together as performers. Um, I know it was, uh, it was in Chicago uh-huh. and, uh, I had gone up, uh, to play the quiet night, right? Richard Harding's club, Richard Harding's club. And I had, he had seen me at a, uh, uh they used to have these, you know, I can't call them here. Uh, but we, we used to showcase. Uh-huh. And it was, uh, Chicago was actually the first city out of the South that I really worked. That's what I've read. Yeah. And, uh, kind of, you know, where I kind of broke out of being a regional singer. Mm-hmm. And as a part of that, Richard hired me not only, you know, in those days you worked, uh, as an opening act or a, probably a month where the headliners came in on a weekly basis. So I was in Chicago for, for that first day for first day for about a month. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a nobody then, but, uh, you know, the Pine and Goodman were the hot, uh, you know, kind of leaders of that the folky scene with uh, Bonnie Kolak and the Holstein brothers and the Post. And post and all those people, so I, I was immediately kind of attracted toward that, gravitated toward it. And the Earl was the place where they all hung out. So, you know, I went to to check out the scene. Mm-hmm. And now, were so, you were you kind of the same kind of status uh, down in Florida, or I'm sorry, down, uh, down at that in the time South? I was living in Nashville. I hadn't moved to Florida in the beginning. Right. Uh, I was just kind of an up and coming guy, and I was just an opening act. Nobody really knew me. Well, had Goodman come down there, would he have found you to have the same kind of status he did in Chicago? No. Okay. No. Okay. I was uh, actually, well, actually, I in the, I was getting known in the club circuit in the South, but I'd never played out of the North, but I was nowhere, you know, there wasn't a place where I, was, I wasn't as popular as he was in that city. Right. Anywhere at that time. And this is early 70s. Yeah. Time. And uh, we just kind of hit it off. It was just one of those. I went to see him. Somebody introduced me to him, and I can't remember who it was. It might even have been Richard. Yeah. And I just kind of fell naturally into that scene. And there was a bar, a little hangout place behind the Earl that we used to always go to. Right. And I think that he came over and saw my show mm-hmm. at the Quiet Night. Mm-hmm. And and from that point on, we were, you know, our friendship was kind of sealed. Mm-hmm. What? What drew the two of you together? What did, what did you have in common at that time, do you think? Uh, you know, I, I think it was just, uh, I can only speak from my sure. view of Steve at that point, but, you know, it was a time period when people actually could perform, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> actually, you had to play an instrument to be a singer. Right. Uh, so... And in that, I think we all looked at who was good and who wasn't and who had, who was a good perform, stage performer. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like, uh, you know, you hate, I hate to equate anything because everybody, the default way to equate anything is to go through a sports mentality. But, uh, you know, as a performer, you're always looking at who's good and who's not and where you think you stand in that and what you could learn from somebody else. I mean, that's the way I looked at it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you certainly could learn a few things from good performers. And and I think I approached Steve in that manner that I, I love the sense of performing and a sense of humor on the stage. Mm-hmm. And as a performer, they kind of was in the same vein as a performer. 
I kind of liked what he did and was natural for us. You know, it wasn't like going to try to make friends with Jerry Garcia, <laughs> you know, though I did later. You know, we we had a lot. We were solo performers mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and entertainers, basically. Mm-hmm. So we kind of recognized that, I would say, in each other. And that probably was what established our friendship. Okay. Um I've, I've heard from several sources. I've talked to more than 280 people for this book, and uh, several have made reference to you were kind of down financially when you were in Chicago. Then. <laughs> and you even you, you asked Steve to drive drive you to the Greyhound bus terminal, and then at the terminal you asked him for the bus fare to your next gig. Uh, that that was, well, the parts of that tree wasn't the bus terminal; it was the train station. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I did, and you know what? He lent it to me right there. Mm-hmm. I'll never that. But that was actually the story I was going to tell you because I, I now I guess it's notorious because it was, mm-hmm. and I did pay him back later. <laughs> but I mean, that's the kind of a friend he really was. I mean, I was, you know, I I was, you know, I I remember that I was strapped. I got there. I did. You know, I don't have to spend all my money or something. I said, you lend me the money. And he was like, yeah, without hesitation, he lent me like 300 bucks to get on the train to go to them. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how you would have gotten there otherwise. I'd have hitchhiked. Yeah. Okay. Um, can you talk a little bit about why why was Chicago a place that accepted you outside of the South? I mean, there was, was there something special about that scene at the time as you entered it? Well, I, you know, I, I kind of, I don't really know. Again, it was kind of, it was a fascinating uh, group of characters, you know. Right. I mean, I could have, but uh, when, looking back on it now, you know, I had attempted a, a similar thing to go to New York, but New York is such a, mm-hmm. at that point in time, I mean, everybody and every, you know, uh, Chicago still is to me more of an American city. New York is a world city. Mm-hmm. And in that respect, you had a lot more uh, of that kind of Midwestern work ethic and people from there that worked hard, played hard kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a melting pot, it's a different melting pot than New York. Mm-hmm. And it, it certainly was. And, you know, what I liked about it is those kind of performers like Goodman Prime were perfectly comfortable uh, being the toast of the town of Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, whereas going, you know, to me, like making it in New York still was the thing that I had on the top of my list. Those guys could play New York, but it didn't mean as much as it did to be accepted in Chicago. And that kind of wore off on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it probably helped me in the long run, eventually, to, you know, sitting in a nest of great performers that inhabited Chicago in those days mm-hmm. uh, couldn't help but wear off. So if you liked what... You know, and and Chicago fans at in all levels are very loyal people. Yeah, yeah. So uh, once they saw me for who I was and what I did, I kind of was able to capture that loyalty, to which I am very grateful for to this day. You know, I still my favorite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as a young and struggling performer, I mean, there were, you know, like I remember going and the one of the bartenders that worked at the Earl is where his girlfriend was a waitress at uh, the quiet night. They took me to this little Greek restaurant where they hung out. You know, I became part of that family there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was real important to me at the time because I didn't know anybody. You know, and I remember Goodman and I used to go uh, to afternoon games. That's where I became, I really became a Cubs fan because, you know, Steve was such a diehard uh, Cubs fan, but you could go to the ball game in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and we worked at night. So that's what we did, you know, and I didn't have any money, like I said. And, and again, in Chicago, I, I wound up having an appreciation for the city itself because I didn't, I was broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was so much you could do, it'd still be broke. I mean, the museum systems, I used to love to go to the museum in Chicago, still do. Take mm-hmm. my kids there all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what museums are for, for people that can't afford other forms of entertainment. And I really appreciate that from a person who had been there. So, you know, I kind of latched on to Chicago at the same time that the Chicago audience kind of accepted me. And uh, it is, it's been a long and wonderful relationship. Um, and, you know, and yeah. Goodman and those guys were very essential in, and spreading the word, and if they liked me, then well, then their fans would like me. So they were, I, I think, in that term, you know, once we became friends and became kind of co-performers, and and there was really no jealousy. I mean, there was probably com- competition, you bet, but that was a wonderful thing about it. Everybody kind of helped everybody else out. That, that's what so many people in, in the Chicago scene talk about. I mean, it was competitive. In fact, to the point of where you get, you get to... You get criticism, you get constructive criticism, but, but they all kind of pull for each other. You bet. I mean, that's what Chicago's about. You, you had to pull your own there. I mean, you know, from the club owners to the performers, and, uh, I think we all made each other better performers. You know, I think I might have brought something to the mix too in my style that, that I think, you know, mm-hmm. that may have wound up in Goodman's thing. And then we started writing together, you know, right. and, uh, so, but, but all the way along the line, yeah, there was a great and wonderful sense of competition. You know, I wanted to be as popular as they were. It drove me to get there, mm-hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden I kind of went, I kind of passed them by. Then they were, you know, then Steve was opening for me. And, uh, mm-hmm. but it always was in great fun and, and, and a great spirit. I want to get to some of those songs, but first of um, I, I really like that metaphor of a nest. I mean, I've, the family is a good one, but but that really kind of describes it. That hits it on the head. Yeah, it really was like that. And when you, you talk about going to baseball games, I was going to ask you about that. Where, where did you sit? Did you sit out in the bleachers? Sometimes we sat in the bleachers, but most of the time we kind of sat down on the first baseline. I remember, yeah. you know. But we sat in the bleachers some, yeah. So you guys talk baseball the whole the whole game? Oh yeah. I mean, it was just you know because we you know we worked at night. Baseball was it. I mean, my I remember seeing Willie Mays play there. Yeah. Know, I mean, things like that. But afternoon Cub games were just, you know, it was wonderful. I'd never, you know, and I was a baseball fan. I mean, we had we had a pretty fair amount of players that came from from Mobile, Alabama, where I'm from. So I was, yeah. my roots were baseball roots, you know, but not Cub roots. And then I became a Cubs fan because that's where I went, you know. Yeah, well, Willie played down in Alabama. Yeah. From that's, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, later years, Steve would bring his guitar out to Wrigley. Uh, he didn't do that with you. Those were really no. Fun, right? No. Yeah. Um, and you were a ball fan from way before. From childhood, yeah. But he kind of converted you to be a Cup fan. Yeah, he converted me to a Cup fan. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically uh, like typical guys at a ballpark talking baseball stuff. All the whole That's time. it. Great memories to have. And... Uh, there's another photo I wanted to ask you about. It's on the, I mean, you've probably been asked about this before, but the cover of the Somebody Else's Trouble down. Right. And, uh, I mean, I'm, you're identified on the back as Marvin Gardens, and it seems like one of the earlier references to that pseudonym. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering, was it just a 
a snapshot somebody shot or was there no a it was like that way he was taking his album cover shot and i was staying at the house and he said you should have was kind of called somebody else's troubles and they were putting i think the kids are in there too aren't yeah they? just jesse yeah yeah and uh so i was staying at the house and so I, you know that was like i was saying it's kind of like family i went i don't want to be there. he said no no it's going to be a good shot it's, 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 uh, he explained whatever the concept was and i said sure i'm in <laughs> there, there, you didn't have anything to do with the music on the album it was no it's more this is the chicago family i mean the yeah whole, the whole scenes are there crying there yeah yeah okay and and marvin gardens i mean there's been reams written about that oh no, well that's just you know it's kind of uh, at that point in time that all came out of the fact that as a solo performer i had the imaginary coral reef band that's how the coral reef started and i would do a stage bit about the members of the band right. you know right. and i named the individual members the uh, phantom members of the band and, and Marvin Gardner <laughs> was one of them i i mean it obviously comes from monopoly but is there any is there anything deeper than that no okay <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned Steve's sense of humor. Um, I've got a, a, a tape of you guys performing together in 73 down at Bubba's. God, yeah. And uh, the rapport between you two is just amazing. He, he's, he's saying, he, he's calling you up on stage. He's, you know, welcome my friend Zeke, good old Zeke 69. Zeke 69, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> and uh, then you're bantering about, uh, he, he's, giving you a hard time about you had somebody draw naked women on your guitar. Right. And you're saying it's a Clairol bottle, herbal essence, and your herbal anise, and Peters and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, uh, I mean, you guys obviously got along real well. Yeah. And then even in a solo break and you win again, you're, you're telling him, take it Marvin, you know, as if he's one of the imaginary members of your band. Oh yeah. It, it all works out real well. Um, and you make reference there to buying Steve some shirts in Chicago, some khaki Navy shirts, about four of them for a quarter apiece at Salvation Army. Do you remember well, that? I used to shop a lot at the Salvation Army. I see he was making more money than I was at that time. So yeah, I didn't know whether he uh, he had had the uh, he had the insight to shop at Salvation Army, but I, I used to go there quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Are you here? Indeed you are, and we're very happy that you are. It's the Paul Leslie Hour, and today, part two of Clay Eel's interview with the legendary Jimmy Buffett. We were saddened, of course, by the loss of this great musical artist who passed away at only 76 years of age, but left behind an incredible catalog of recordings. If you haven't heard part one of the Jimmy Buffett interview with Clay Eels, make sure to find it on this channel. Subscribe to Paul Leslie's YouTube channel so you don't miss a thing. Clay and Paul will talk for just a couple of minutes, and then we'll roll into the second part of this never-before-heard interview with Jimmy Buffett. Clay Eels did this interview by phone in October of 2000 for his landmark book, Steve Goodman Facing the Music. So, part two, let's listen together. Steve, 
So, Clay, the second part of your interview with Jimmy Buffett seems to focus on the songs. And a lot of the songs that Jimmy Buffett recorded, these are some of my favorites. Jimmy Buffett both co-wrote songs with Steve Goodman, but he also covered a couple like Banana Republics and California Promises. Of those songs, as a man writing a book about Steve Goodman, which you did, which song were you the most curious about? Well, of all of their co-writes, uh, many of them held a lot of interest for me, and, and so did the Goodman songs that you mentioned that Buffett covered. But probably the one that I was intrigued about most was their co-write about the TV game show Let's Make a Deal, and that song was called Door Number 3. It's quite a funny song. It's a great satire. And the reason I was intrigued was because if you listen to each of their versions, Goodman's version and Buffett's version had different lyrics at the end. I mean, Goodman's uh, version, he, he does a brilliant, just a straight steal of lyrics from Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, which is incredibly clever if you think about it, because because the lyrics fit the song so well, and including the classic line, you know, do you want to make a deal? <laughs> but but Buffett went a different way altogether at the end of the song. He he decided to be more caustic and to call the game show host Monty Hall. Remember him? Right. He, he called Monty Hall a son of a bitch. And I was able to ask Jimmy about that in the interview, and he gave quite a nice answer. So that's where that was one where, you know, if you're prepared with with knowing your material, you can kind of get down to some nice nitty-gritty. For so many of the listeners of this show, the songs are important in everything from the lyrics to the co-writers. So I think it's time. Let's begin the second part of Clay Eel's interview with Jimmy Buffett. This took place in October of 2000, being brought out for the first time now. Let's go into the songs. You talked about songwriting. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if, in general, you had a pattern of how you wrote together. When I talked to Michael Smith, he he said that uh, Stevie would call him up and say, I'm coming through town for a few weeks. Let's write a song. When I get there, you tell me what it's going to be about. And uh, so Michael would do that, and then instantly Stevie would come up with the first line. And, uh, you know, that was their M.O., sort of. Yeah. Did you guys have an M.O.? You know, did you say, we're going to sit really. down? Right? I think it's, it was kind of that way that, you know, it, it, it all depended on if somebody was working on a project. I, you know, Banana Republic, which I recorded, I just loved that song. I think, you know, I yeah. might have been the inspiration for that because I was the one that always got him to get I think I, I was the one that sent him on the trip. I can't remember. Down to but, St. Croix. Yeah, he went to St. Croix and wrote that song there because I was, you know, down in the Caribbean at that time. And when I heard it, I just loved it. It was sounded like a song, you know, that I should have written. And uh, well, I bet you get people asking you all the time if you if you wrote it or they yeah. And uh, so you know, it started. I mean, I always loved his sense of humor in his songs, which which I did. And we all wrote for each other. But then, I think door number three, we were just kind of. I was playing around with it, and we were there, and I was staying there, and we just kind of went in one day and said, you know, let's, that that's kind of the way it just happened. It was very this was at his spontaneous. house. This was at his house. Yeah. Um, one interview, he says that you guys were sitting around about 1130 in the morning watching TV and drinking a pitcher of pina coladas. Probably. And he says, we tried for 20 minutes. And then I finally said, I, I don't know what Jay's got on the table. And then he says, 
the song wrote itself. That it probably was that, you know. I remember sitting around <laughs> and then, you know, um, it was just that's the kind of way we did it. And we would kind of, at that time, you know, we were traveling. I was kind of out of Nashville at that time, and he was in and out of Nashville. And so if he would show up, I mean, he'd do anything. It just was a matter. It was a pleasure being around him as a friend and as an inspiration. And it, it really didn't matter whether, you know, he came and he played guitar on quite a few things later on. That's right. And uh, in the early days, we wrote more together because we were, we were not as busy. There was time to hang out. Then as things got busier, yeah. he'd always poke in a song, you know, California Promises. Right. He'd, he'd always slip one in on me there. You know, he was a crafty <laughs> little businessman as well. You know? <laughs> and when it, it never seemed to fail that when album time would come around, you know, Goodman would pop in and go, oh, well, I got this little song here, you know, and I'd be like in the studio and I'd have to go, okay, we'll cut this thing. That's what California Promises. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, for for door number three, Steve said that uh, it was your idea that you'd always wanted to write a song about. Let's make a deal. Yeah, I, I watched that show. I was kind of in love with Carol Merrill <laughs> and uh, and, I, and the absurdity of the whole thing. You know? Sure, sure. Um, but but you have a. I mean, you you both have the same song except for the last verse. He does that Dylan lyric. And then you've got the one, you know, son of a bitch, yeah. you know, and yours is a little more caustic at the end. It's, it's more of a, you know, blatant, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it really goes after Bonnie again. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think I'd ever choke Bonnie, you know, it just was, you know, it's, just, it's a song, you know, it's, uh, there's right. some days you just want to do it. It's like any, you know, there are days you want to turn the television off. It's kind of was in reference to that, you know, so. Sure. I don't know. Is there any? Uh, I mean, is there any reason that that Steve didn't want to use that verse and you did? And, yeah, I don't know. And you didn't want to use the Dylan verse and he did. I mean, no. I, I, there's I cleverness you know. in both of them. It's a, yeah. It's an interesting kind of little detail about why they're <laughs> different. Um, when when you had just written this, uh, Goodman was on uh, like three in the morning on a Philadelphia radio show with Gene Shea, and he performed that. And this was before he got on the album. And then he says, um, Jimmy and I have got another one we're working on called I'll Bet Mel Blank's Got Money in the Bank. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Um, that was my idea because I was a Looney Tunes fan. And you know what? I, uh, I'd never finished writing it. Uh-huh. But uh, <laughs> I can do the lyrics right now, you know. Oh, tell me. Yeah. See, it's, uh, I bet Mel Blank's got money in the bank with all the voices he could do. Foghorn, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, just to mention a few. If you're lying in bed, sick sick in the head, here's what you, don't worry, something. I bet Mel Blank's got money in the bank. Maybe he'll give something to you. I, <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's pretty good. That's the, Which, did Steve work on that with you? Was he a part writer of it? Or? I don't think so. I can't remember. I mean, it was just that's that's as far as that song ever got. It sure sounds like a, a Goodman and You type song. You know, but he had that kind of a sense of humor, you know, that kind of, to, you know, I'm working on new stuff today. I've got one called uh, What If the Hokey Pokey Is All It Really Is About. <laughs> you know, I mean, so it's still, I don't know if that's the ghost of Steve Goodman or not. <laughs> that's something that, that he told you about? No, you're working. Oh, I'm working on that right now. You are, you okay? They're always in the in the blender kind of. Yeah. Um, next year, woman going crazy on Caroline Street. That 
that's in Key West. Did right. Steve spend time with you there, or how did that song come about? What's his contribution to it? Um, I think I had started it again. There were lots of times, you know, I would just be, I, you know, I'd, I'd look at it if I had enough songs to go into the studio, and if I didn't, and if I was working on something, you know, I knew by that time we could collaborate on things, and it was a good chemistry. Yeah. And, uh, which you got to understand doesn't happen often. I was not a big collaborator in those days, mm-hmm. and still am not. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but it worked very well. So, you know, I think Caroline Street was almost nearly written, and he was either down there, and I can't even remember what was going on. I know about the Caroline Street story and where I got the ideas from, but yeah. as far as cutting it, I'm not sure. Uh, I think that I just sent that to him, or we talked about it, and... Uh, and he came up with some ideas. That's kind of the way it works. It came originally from you, and he helped you out, kind of? Okay. Um, and then uh, but I'm jumping five years later to Where's the Party? Um, that was him. That was him. He okay. started that, and I kind of finished up on that. It seems like one of these uh, coming out of your early persona things. It's like, uh, you know, being tired of the party. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I, you know, I, I for one, never dissect things. I mean, if it's, uh, if yeah. it's got a good lyric and if it, you know, the song was haunting. I mean, Banana Republic spoke to me. California Promises spoke to me. Sure. Where's the party spoke to me. And I never, I never go deeper than that. I mean, that, that's, you know. Well, there's one that's on the same album that's, a little more literal, and that's a, it's midnight, and I'm not famous yet. Yeah, and the, and that's a co-writing credit. Where where did that one come from? It's a, uh, a that is after after a wild weekend in Lake Tahoe. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, all of that technical stuff, thirty-two hop and ten dollar yo, and well, I was a crap player. Yeah, yeah. How was Steve as a crap player? I don't know. Or did he? I I kind of started that. That was another one that he finished up. You know. It seems like there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of really funny rhyming in that. Not funny, bad, but funny, funny. You know, I mean, Reno. Well, Kino, you try to get a couple of them, yeah. Kino yeah. and Reno, I think that was his. Lester yeah. Polyester. And, I mean, he he had a way with rhyming. You do, too. I mean, it's like you guys were made for each other to do that kind of stuff. Well, that's the thing I was saying. We could bounce off of each other, you know, like that. Yeah. The last one the co-writing credit is, is Frank and Lola. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it's, it says that you wrote it in 1982, which is two years before Goodman died, but, yeah. but it didn't come out until the year afterward on uh-huh. the, the mango album. Huh? Um, any thoughts about how that came about and how the two of you worked on that? I mean, um, you know, I started Frank and Lola. That's as close as I could get at those days to a relationship song. It was kind of, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. I think if you all, even in all the all the trials and tribulations we have to go through, I think the other thing that I got to see was the way, I mean, even through his leukemia was the fact that this amazing sense of humor that he had about dying. Mm-hmm. He had an amazing spirit in that respect, you know, and to his last day. Uh, when he had a, he called that thing had a turkey a turkey base mm-hmm. he would go in and get these horrible things in New York and he had this thing in his head there was stuff in there mm-hmm. and I know when he was not feeling good and when he wasn't but his amazing sense of humor and right to the very end was kind of what you know uh, and, and uh, 
you know, we'd always talk about writing some other things, but I knew that he was very sick. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, to keep Frank and Lola's, you know, even in, in something that's a better relationship, we could not look at it without having our sentiments. Sure. sure. Even in the tragedy of his early death, mm-hmm. it's in humor. Uh, really, with the situation to me and I, I think everybody else, that's mm-hmm. the way he approached it. Um, so you you each brought a sense of humor to the song, but you also brought a, a lyrical craft too. I mean, you talked a lot about songwriting being a craft. Oh, I think so too, and I think that's the other thing. Like I said, back to the early days, that you know, it's like having a mold. If we go back into baseball terms, you know, it's kind of have like a utility infielder. You know, it's a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have people that can sing or that can play or can write, but when you can do all of them, I mean, I'm 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 not a very good singer and I'm not a very good guitar player, but I can crack and craft the show and I can craft the song. So you play to your strongest suit, but you're kind of like a utility player. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what appealed to us that there was a guy that could really move an audience on the stage and also could really craft the song. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are what I consider after all these years my two strongest. Uh, traits, you know, in, in terms of being a performer. I'm certainly not a gifted guitar player, a dazzling singer, or somebody that, uh, that wiggles around on stage. <laughs> I know my, uh, I play to my strong, I think you learn that as the experience goes on. But in the beginning, you know, that's why I don't think I've really changed much in 30 years. And I think that mm-hmm. that's what, you know, Goodman was kind of a, not only inspiration, but a partner in that because we kind of, it's it's kind of like being a uh, knowing, you know, performing is magic. You know, you can't explain how to do that. People to try to figure it out. Well, good luck. <laughs> you know, it's something yeah. you're you're given as a gift, and uh, it's it's great to, you know, I, I try to to take advantage of the fact that I've got this gift and have abused it to the best of my ability. And I think if you see somebody else that that does it as well as Steve did, you know, it's inspiring. And it always was then and still is. Would you, would you say he, he had all strong suits? I mean, you know, he was a much better guitar player than I was. He was a good acoustic guitar player. Yeah. You know, he really was. And he had, a, you know, uh, but, you know, I'd still say his performing and his writing outweighs his, his playing mm-hmm. and his singing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just, you know, he was a good singer. I'm not a great singer. He was a good guitar player, not a great guitar player. And, uh, mm-hmm. But he could really craft a song, mm-hmm. and he could really craft an audience. He he used to talk about the the sort of the third or the fourth dimension. You know, there's there's singing, uh, songwriting, there's uh, playing, but then but being the entertainer was what he was after. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, I think being an entertainer is what he really was best at. I think, you know, being, and that's what I I consider myself, I don't, uh, I consider myself an entertainer. You know, that covers the basics. Um, and, you know, other people look at me as a songwriter, or, you know, there's the humor songs, there's sensitive songs, so they, there's enough out there for everybody to make up which of me they want. Sure. But, you know, sure. I, I when looking back at it, you know, I would say my craft is being an entertainer. I think that was good. Sure. Sure. Let me go back to a couple of songs that are that are similar of yours. I mean, uh, I'm wondering if he went to Paris was influenced by Goodman's version of the Dutchman at all. 
I mean, there's something. Mm, I've never thought of it as that. It was actually it was it was more influenced by the guy Eddie Bauchowski who worked in right. the Quiet Night. Right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I love the Dutchman, but uh, I, you know, I didn't listen to it as a model for writing. He went to Paris. Okay. Right? That was really just Eddie Bauchowski and I. How about uh, Cheeseburger in Paradise and Chicken Cordon Blues? No, 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 that was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a similar message there, but yeah. Um, I, there's a tape of Steve uh, doing death of an unpopular poet uh-huh. on the radio, and he's really very reverent. Uh, I mean, he he says, you know, if you really want to hear a good Jimmy Buffett song that doesn't get airplay, you got to hear this. Yeah. Why do you think that might have appealed to Steve that that song? I don't know. You know, it's uh, it's one of my favorite songs, and it was one of those early songs. You know, sure. it's a cray. You know, if it's anything, it's a it's a well written song. You know, and it was a song that came out of a passion of mine for Kenneth, passion for Kenneth Patch and an old poet. Right. And uh, you know, it's like certain songs. Just you know, even today. I mean, I'm putting a collection of songs together for my next album, and. There's a lot of outside material, you know. I I don't look at it now like, oh God, I got to go write another Jimmy Buffett song. I'm going to write what I feel is mm-hmm. acceptable and good for this. But there's also, you know, quite a few outside pieces of material that, since I haven't recorded in a while, really speak to me. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna play them, you know, because I just think the song speaks to you. Sure. And I, you know, I just think it's an honor that, that he, you know, when other people do your things, it's like the time Dylan did. Pirate, you know, right? I know, but somebody had to tell me about that, and I thought, "Wow, <laughs> you know." I mean, I think of all the Bob Dylan's I, uh, songs I've done. I'd like to say to Bob Dylan, but not a lot of people out there say Bob Dylan did one of mine. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, uh, and it just must just, you know, people asking me, he just loved the song. You know, he still yeah. when I saw Dylan later, he just loved that song. Well, so, you know, uh, there's enough of them out there of people that wrote that I love, and I'm glad that you know I'm just happy to be included. That that his fellow artists, you know, it's a compliment to what you do. What he was saying about it, I think, in part explains it. He says that it's it, that, that it, there aren't references to Patchen in the song. Um, so it's, it, it can be interpreted more broadly. He says, well, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I try to still do that as a writer, even in fiction and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, I try to, uh, you know, you could paint pictures without, you know, putting a lot of details in there. Okay. That's, that's kind of what let me go to a couple of other Goodman songs you recorded. This hotel room. Yeah. Why did you like that? Because well, I'd lived in hotel room and I thought he just nailed it. <laughs> I just thought it was just a wonderful piece of satire about living on the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still do. It's a. It, uh, he also turns it into a love song at the end. <laughs> kind of a sneaky thing. Yeah. Um, we already talked about Banana Republic. So I'm, I'm wondering, you think you may have inspired it by by telling him you got to go down there, you got to go down there. I think so. I mean, you know, I was living that Caribbean life, and then he went to St. Croix. He went on a vacation, I think, and he wrote that song. He he says uh, this was originally just for the square group or fishermen down there. So that's what Jimmy Buffett called the runners. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of similar to your Tampico trauma that came out the same year. Yeah. Um, it's... Uh, what uh, if, I think is I think Banana Republic's a better song. <laughs> well, what, what makes Banana Republic's a great song? And you're, uh, it's a great story. I mean, it's it paints a real accurate vision of of expatriates, mm-hmm. and for for people that know them and for people that just don't, it's it's a very vivid image. And still, you know, that's that's 
probably one of you know, and you get into the most requested song, you mm-hmm. know, uh, favorites of mine or, mm-hmm. or my performances. Banana Republic's got to be one of them, and I think it's best. Okay, okay, and it's also, I mean, you talk about humor, the yeah, and the wordplay of words we can dance to and a melody that rhymes. Yeah, but that the, the whole thing, it's a, it's a great song. I got to ask you about Elvis imitators. <laughs> and you recorded it before Steve did. Yeah. And uh, Steve and Michael Smith put it together. But how did you come to, to? I mean, I know Steve performed it on stage about the same time, but you put it out on this sort of limited edition single. Yeah. And it's Freddie and the Fish Sticks. Freddie and the Fish Sticks, yeah, because people didn't know. They were so, the engineers didn't want their names on it. They were so ashamed of what we did to it. <laughs> and, with, you know, but the thing was, the Jordanaire sang on it. Uh-huh. That's the original Jordanaire that I got to sing on Elvis Imitate. And, uh, I mean, it, it's, the, the appeal of the song is obvious, but uh, how did it, did Goodman come to you and say, no, I, just, I love. He played it for me. I went. I love that song. I mean, I thought of it as a great stage song. Sure. And you know, when I first heard it, and we went in and just as a joke, we did it in the studio. You know, as mm-hmm. Freddie the Fish Sticks thing. And then we everybody kind of got such a hoot out of it. And we said, well, let's just call the Jordanaires. Hell, they came over. Mm. And then so we put the Jordanaires on. This is down in Elvis. I mean, I'm an Elvis fan of all the Elvis. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so this is down in Nashville. Yeah, we did it in Nashville. Was Goodman involved in the recording of that? Do you think? No. Okay. I don't think so. Okay. On that out, there, there's an album that came out same time somewhere over China. you and, and you have a reference to a reeferette named Freddie Fishstick. You know, I mean that's just another one of your mythical. Just another mythical of the band. character who appeared later in the book. Too. Right. Right. Um, you put that out as a single, but not on an album. Did it go anywhere? Or how did? Hell no. <laughs> I did it in Las Vegas. You know, I did it in Las Vegas a couple of years. It's kind of a fun song. It pops up every now and then. So, was it a limited pressing of a single? Or how? I mean, was I can't it, remember. It's just kind of a joke to get it out there. Yeah, I don't know why I can't remember. Yeah. And the other one that you recorded is California Promises. That was uh, the last thing I did, yeah. Yeah, and he, uh, I mean. I just love that song, and then Rita Coolidge came and sang on it. I mean, just kind of made it. Right. That, that's it. Hello, hello. Are you here, friendo? It is the Paul Leslie Hour, and we're here today with part three, the final part of Clay Eel's interview with the late Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett passed away September 1st, 2023. One thing is certain, the likes of him will not be seen again. Clay Eels and Paul will talk for a bit, and then we'll begin the final part of this never-before-heard interview with Jimmy Buffett. We think you'll learn a lot about Jimmy. Author Clay Eels did this interview by telephone in October of the year 2000. He did this for his book, Steve Goodman Facing the Music. After the interview, you'll hear Paul and Clay talk a bit more. They look for meaning. You could look for meaning. Consider subscribing to Paul Leslie's YouTube channel. And by all means, if you've enjoyed this interview, share it anywhere. 
we ask that you all accentuate the positive. And with that, I say, hey, let's listen together. So here we are. It's the third and final part of the interview. This is Clay Eel's interview with Jimmy Buffett. He conducted this interview for the purposes of his book, Steve Goodman Facing the Music, a biography by Clay Eels. In this third and final part of the interview, something that struck me is that although the purpose of the interview was to learn about Steve Goodman primarily, we do learn so much about Jimmy Buffett. There's so many little nuggets that I found myself just thinking, wow, that's something. What were you most surprised to learn from your interview with Jimmy Buffett? Well, Buffett's got a laid back persona, you know, like he was a big partier and wanted everybody else at the party. And we all know that. And given that, I was expecting a lot of kind of aw shucks answers and vagueness from him. But but I was trying to get at a lot of details. And for the most part, it was surprising to me that Jimmy matched me detail for detail, which was great. And what was even better is that at times he was quite profound, especially when he talked about his philosophy of performing, which which was just so strikingly similar to Goodman's, almost word for word. But there's also an element that applies to any interview, and that is it's just wonderful to, to learn new stuff. I mean, many times when you're interviewing somebody who's prominent, you're, you're just getting that person to tell you something that you already know. But with Buffett, there were anecdotes that were new to me, and, and they were a perfect fit for my Goodman biography. And and probably the best example opens the last chapter of my book, which is it's just a hilarious story about Buffett rehearsing the national anthem so furiously early in the morning at his hotel before singing it at Wrigley Field in Goodman's place just after Goodman died. And again, just just amazing detail. And you'll get to hear it in this third part. Yes, and that, that did bring a chuckle definitely when I heard that. And let's just get to it. This is the third and final part of Clay Eel's interview with Jimmy Buffett. Let's begin. Now, he recorded with you on several of your albums playing backup guitar. He played yeah. backup vocals. He used to talk a lot about how doing a record is different from a live show. And I'm wondering if you saw that in the studio with him. You know, that you got to give people more in a, in a studio record. Well, you know, it's, it, there's a difference. I mean, I've always worked fast. I'm not somebody that makes making a record a painstaking process. You know? mm-hmm. um, to to whatever you know, something there's everybody has their style of doing it. You know, I'm not one that goes in there and tries to be some kind of perfectionist. You know, I'm I think can capture as opposed to create mm-hmm. uh, because I think that comes from being alive. So I. I, I, I take a philosophy into the studio of not trying to beat a song to death. I mean, other people can do it. They come out and make a miraculous Grammy-winning album, and then and I'm happy for them, but it's not me. Right. Uh, and so... You're more going for the moment. I'm going for the moment and the spontaneity. And you have somebody like Steve Goodman playing, he rang spontaneity to the moment. Okay. He's a great performer. So it was always, you know, and he... I can only say that people have kind of worked on records in those days who were more used to playing top studio players always got a kick out of, out of playing a good man because it brought a freshness and a, and a, 
you know, a little, you know, they used to just laying down track almost as if it's an eight to five job, three, you know, three right. sessions a day. And we were different, you know, because our approach was different. And he was always welcome and could just slide into any place and, and fit right into my band. Seemed like, like an encyclopedia of songs and chords. I mean, he could, oh, yeah. He could pull it out pretty quickly. Um, there's one thing I'm not, I don't know if you remember this or not, but uh, in the early 80s, um, and this was after Steve was, or, or tail ender when Steve was opening for Steve Martin, mm-hmm. he, he commissioned this parody video that Martin Mull narrated. Do you remember this? And he played it before his concert. It's about a two and a half minute thing where Martin Mull is basically, uh, it's, it's a satire on how you ought to buy Steve's album. You know, and you I remember can, something about that. Yeah. And uh, you were involved in it. it aren't I? Pardon? Am I in it? Yeah, you and Bonnie Raitt are talking. You know, and, and Martin Malt has this, he cuts away, he says, uh, uh, you know, but don't don't ask me about how good Steve Goodman is. I'm just a comedian. Let's talk to some people who are really actually performing artists, people like Jimmy Buffett and Bonnie Raitt. And instead of you guys saying how great Steve is, you're arguing about how much Goodman paid you to do this. <laughs> you're saying, is he paying you to do anything to do this? And uh, you know, have you got a yeah. copy of that? Yes, I do. Oh, uh, audio, audio copy, not video, but oh, I'd be video. happy to send it to you. Um, you. I put it on tape and put it in the mail. Oh, that'd be great. She, he said he would. He said he'd be delighted. You say, well, how much is he paying? And she says, well, it's hard to tell. With Steve... And you say, no, I want to know how much because I know what he offered me. I want to know what he offered you. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got the video? I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think, um, Ben Al's got yeah, it. Yeah, Al's got it. But, but, uh, you know, there, Steve, it would be like Steve to play that kind of a self-deprecating thing, you know, to introduce him. And stuff. Yeah. Um, but you only have vague memories of that. Nothing yeah. specific. It's, uh, it's a great opening to a concert. <laughs> I wanted to know, did you know early on that he'd been living with cancer? Yeah. Did, he must have told you? Yeah, he felt. Did he talk about this much? Not not that much. I mean, we did not talk about it, you know, until he started getting sick. And mm-hmm. It was a fact, and I knew about it, and he was, you know, I knew the story that he had been diagnosed and both had been dead, and he was living on borrowed time, and he knew it. Mm-hmm. Did it. Did it affect how you or others viewed him or interacted with him, do you think? It affected me in the way that I think it was the first, you know, somebody as close as we were who had a serious illness. I had never had anybody in my family die at that point. I had not, not had the experience then. So, yeah, it affected me. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, did it, but I mean, did it, did interacting with him day to day, I mean. No, like I said, he wouldn't let you go there, you know. Kind he of. was very upbeat about everything. He kind of made you forget about it, it seems like. Yeah, you know, and even in, like I said, when he was really sick and I saw him in the end, you know, and I went to Seattle. Uh, you did? Yeah, I was in the hospital with him right before he died. He so, was unconscious. Oh, man. So you weren't able to say goodbye, so to speak? Well, I think I did. Yeah. But yeah. he wasn't he would talking. He was on my support at that time. I went to the Seattle. Yeah, I went to the hospital. Out of Utah Hospital? Yeah, I was playing the temperature. going up up there to say. Very upset. I mean, it must have hit you hard. It hit me very hard because I never seen anybody like that. But then I chose remember he would want me to make it like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then I went back down. 
Um, and then two weeks later, you turn around and, and you're singing the national anthem at Wrigley. Yeah. The first day of the playoffs. How, yeah, how did that come to be? Um, they asked, uh, I think, I can't remember whether he was set to sing. Yeah. And I can't remember whether the Cubs asked me or whether Nancy asked me. I can't remember. But, uh, walk into that. <laughs> that was like going to church, you know. That was, that was where I think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was much better than being in the hospital, I'll tell you. <laughs> had, and had you ever done that at a game before? No. I went, I went there. I'll tell you a quick story, then i got to go. because. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost done here. Uh, there, of course, there was all this emotion. If you take the emotion of the Cubs being in the playoff, all of a sudden being asked to do this, and again, you know, this is kind of like the eulogy that Chicago's goodbye to Steve Goodman. Mm-hmm. And I was so serious about it, and I think I had I had never sung at Wrigley Field before, and uh, I'd sung a couple of national anthems, maybe down in Florida at football games, maybe only one at that time, I can't remember. But but not a baseball game. Not a Cubs game. This was very, and so, mm-hmm. you know, and the night before, I went out and bought a blazer. I mean, I got serious, and I started listening to the lyrics and started singing the song practice, and I remember I was staying at the White Hall Hotel. I'm having to get and I checked in, and I got up early in the morning because I had to be out the parking. Very cold day. And everybody was kind of celebrating, wanted to go out there. And I said, no, I can't go out. I've got to get up. You know, i got to be on the money for this thing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I went to bed, and I got up early in the morning. I was showering and everything. And I'm singing the national anthem. I was singing the shower. I'm singing it all morning long. And I'll never forget walking out of my hotel room. Mm-hmm. About the same time, the guy in the hotel room next to me came out of his door. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me like with this look like a fear in his eye, like who is this wacko super patriot that sings the national anthem every morning? <laughs> and I looked at him. I said, "It's okay. I'm doing it at the ball game." And he said, "Boy, I, you know, dude, I, I never knew who the guy was." And I just walked by him in the hallway. <laughs> but I thought, you know, and I thought going out of there, Goodman would have loved that. Mm-hmm. Me, you know, sitting there working that, that diligently and some guy thinking that I'm some wacko, you know, militia guy going to blow up the town or something. <laughs> so, you know, that happened the morning before I went out and sang. That's a, and that is a good way to say goodbye. Cause you, you performed at the California Tribune, right? I believe I did. Yeah, that was shortly after that. Um, another way to kind of, to, to, close it but uh i imagine it'll never be really i mean he was a good friend of yours well he was you know and i always think about him like even to this day when we'd go do i tried to a steve goodman song yeah i used to mention it a lot but then i thought you know it's part of a show mm-hmm. people know you don't have to point a finger to what you're doing in tribute you know and i used to always say that you know i can't uh, come to Chicago and play a show and I do Steve Goodman. No, I, I don't really say that to an audience anymore because my audience know that, but I do. What ones do you play most often? Banana Republic. That's the one. Yeah. Do uh, Parrot Heads tend to be Goodman fans? I don't know. You know, uh, it's an interesting thing, you know, that uh, 
I think that the, you know there's so many diversified. You know, they're if they're hardcore parrotheads. They probably are. People in general probably don't know. Mm-hmm. The the one last thing Steve say this as much as anybody. Hundred years from now, nobody will give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think his stuff will live on? What of his stuff is? I mean, I or, think it lives on now. I mean, he. He lives on where he should live on to me, and that's uh, in uh, the family of performers. I mean, I don't think he ever wanted or cared about living on in terms of mm-hmm. lasting on the level of a Frank Sinatra or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't his nature, but I think uh, I think he lives on because of uh, his ability to craft the song, mm-hmm. and not a lot of people know about him uh, who are this day it wouldn't have been a part of that era mm-hmm. or followers you know but I think the people that uh, you know that that do that for a living who he has touched mm-hmm. uh, will always and I'll always I mean, the, my, my time to Steve and the time we had and to good think about it seems like there are two kinds of people there's people who say Steve who and then there's Steve Goodman you know yeah. I mean there's, there's and no I think that's the way he would have liked it you know he was not you know, he was, I remember late, you know, and, uh, you know, when I was kind of taking off, you know, and I chose to go ahead and go for it. And he was very happy with his, you know, success at his level. You know, and I remember him playing with Jethro Burns and, you know, I had to go see those guys. And then by that time, Gamble Rogers, I had taken Gamble to Chicago. Right. You know? Right. And that was that connection. You know, that, that's gone now. There's not a lot of people who still perform like that. You know, I was fortunate enough to do what I did. And, and it got bigger than I ever thought in my wildest dreams. And I'm just, I'm just riding, riding the wave, you know. Right. I mean, uh, and I think he would appreciate that. He always, he always, we talk about that. He said, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna do it. I, I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. No, it'll happen. Why do you think it didn't happen to him in that sense? Um, well, who knows? You know, it's all about luck and it's all about combinations of things. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, I don't know what happened for me. And, you know, there's a series of events that happened. And mm-hmm. He possessed all the tools that, that, that I possessed. There's nothing when I look back at our parallel careers. I mean, uh, he mm-hmm. probably had a few more tools than I had. Mm-hmm. But that was. And, uh, you know, maybe it's making it, so to speak. It's. I mean, it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's too. not all it's cracked up to be. No, it's not bad, but it's not all it's cracked up to be. I mean, I can say it as a survivor of 32 years. Yeah. I feel like it. I mean, I love it better than any other job I can think about having. <laughs> but, you know, I think he was happy. I think what happened when his family came along and he knew his time was limited, mm-hmm. uh, that meant more to him. You know, he, he didn't want to, you know, I don't think he... You know, his priorities changed at that point. I was still single and raised in hell. Uh, he still had a family and he had a limited time. And I think that, you know, he made the right decision. Mm-hmm. He could have been, you know, he could have been. You know, when Brian, you know, if you look at John, I mean, John's kind of the same way. John had that great rise, still has, you know, a very comfortable career. I could have been right there, too, and been very happy. Mm-hmm. I, I know that, you know, but something happened to me and I was lucky enough that mm-hmm. uh, something tripped in and more people thought it was cool than Whatever, I don't know. <laughs> he he certainly wasn't slighted, I guess. I mean, it's, uh... No, I no, I don't think at all. I think he had what he wanted. Uh, you know, we we all did at that point in time. You know, if it, 
you know, those, those Chicago years were wonderful years. I'm just lucky enough to still be performing at a level that, that I'm happy with. And I'm sure everybody that went through them is the same way, you know. Sure. I love what John Prine does these days. This does, I think he would have probably been right there with Prine at that level. He still had his fans going and playing it. True. You know. And Prine's got a strong base out there wherever yeah. he goes. I got, I got to ask you, it's not directly related to you, but, but uh, City of New Orleans, we haven't talked about that at all, and yet that's his most, uh, it's a standard, you know. Uh, with, in your mind, wh- how do you look at that song? I mean, that, uh, uh, I think you just say it's a standard. It's like Margaritaville to me. You know, it was some, somehow it became a hit. Mm-hmm. It became a song everybody liked. Uh, you know, it, it's not something that, uh, you know, I'm like that. I go to the other Steve Goodman songs, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, the, you know, it, but it was the launching path for him. And by, you, you're lucky to get one. Mm-hmm. Most people don't get one. You know, and he wrote a standard and I wrote a standard. It's kind of funny that, you know, we had a lot of, very, a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities. Yep. yep. And the way I look at Margaritaville, it belongs to people. They want to hear it, I'll play it. You know, that's being a performer and an entertainer. It's not being an artist. You know, there are other people who go, well, I don't do that stuff anymore. Well, I'm not one of those people. You know, I, mm-hmm. I know who takes the friend around here, and I will play the song. It's an entertainer this time. I think the audience. I think. That's part of the bargain. Yeah, it is part of the bargain. And then and Steve recognized that, too. I can always go play the other song for people. You know, you don't don't apologize for your whole device. Sure, sure. Well, I really appreciate this time, Jimmy. It's it's the greatest gift. I mean, it's your time. Um, You said you would like me to send you this cassette tape of the Mark. Oh, yeah, I'll I'll check with Al. I'd love to see the video of that thing. Yeah, it'd be great. I'll I'll check with him about that. Okay. um, All right. uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'll keep in touch uh, through Keith Kate. Okay, I'd love to see the book when you get done with it. All right. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Clay, thank you so much for providing this interview so that we could bring this to all of the listeners out there. I do feel like with Steve Goodman passing and Jimmy Buffett just recently having passed on, there are things we can take away from their lives. There were a couple just from listening to this interview, but it's given me a lot of time to think what occurs to you, Clay? Well, that's an easy one. And I think it's just a number one life lesson. And and it goes to, I mean, whatever you believe about how we all got here in this life, I don't think we're meant to be hermits. We're supposed to connect with people. We're supposed to engage people and inspire people. And I think both Steve Goodman and Jimmy Buffett embodied that lesson, and I hope that we can all continue to learn it. Very well stated. Everybody out there, you can check out Clay Eels online, and this the website is www.clayeels.com, E-A-L-S. And also, for those of you, like me, who like to find out all the stories behind songs and great songwriters, Steve Goodman, Facing the Music, a biography by Clay Eels. There's a lot of stuff in here and some just really fascinating things. I hope you all check it out. And Clay, thank you so much for sharing this interview with my audience and also for keeping the name of people like Steve Goodman and 
like Jimmy Buffett and like Studs Terkel and so many of these other people, Arlo Guthrie, they're people that have really made an impression on this world, and I applaud you for doing what you've done. Well, thank you so much, Paul. And, you know, it's people like you and others who've kept the book alive. My, I, I don't know of another author who has the privilege that I do of when the book sells out a printing that I'm able to update a printing. <laughs> That's due to my publisher, ECW Press. And so the book is now in updated sixth p- printing. And like you said, my website's the place to go if you want to make sure to get the most recent edition. And it comes with a signed postcard by me and and also a actual CDR of tribute songs to Goodman that are described in the book as well. And it's just it's <laughs> it's been a joy to do this project and it's it's the biggest project of my life. Hmm. Well, Clay, thank you so much. Great always great to talk to you. Okay. Thank you. Till next time. We thank you and appreciate you dropping in for the Paul Leslie Hour today. You know, you can help the Paul Leslie Hour in our mission to provide independent media content like this by visiting www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. We truly thank you. This is your announcer speaking. Performance of the Entertainer intro song and Corina Corina outro song, courtesy of John Primerano. Well, that's it for today. So until next time, be safe and be good. <laughs>